welcome to Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for Jane Austen lovers and nerds who love bold, witty women, awkward men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. In this podcast, we read Jane Austen's novels, discuss her life and influences, her influences on feminism, entertainment, modern literature, and as much nerddom as we can get away with. Together, we'll read Austen's published works and discuss the major themes running through each of them. We'll also take time to talk about Austen criticism, her earliest fans, and her place as an author in the 21st century. Today, we'll discuss Chapter 2 of Austen's first published novel, Sense and Sensibility. If you missed the conversation in Episode 1, I invite you to settle in with a cup of tea and listen to that episode before it's starting on this one. But before we get to today's reading... I want to introduce a new segment to the Ents and Sensibility podcast, The Life of Jane. In this segment, we'll discuss important dates in Jane's life. We'll read parts of her letters and meet friends, family, and acquaintances. In December 1795, 21-year-old Jane met Tom Lefroy, the 21-year-old nephew of her family's neighbor. In the biography, Jane Austen at Home, Author Lucy Worsley writes about Jane's first love. It was a ball at Dean House that Jane met and danced with a Tom of her own. Over the course of two more balls, at Many Down Park and at Ash Rectory, she seems to have fallen in love with Thomas Langlois Lefroy. Tom Lefroy was a law student from Limerick, Ireland, who had studied at Trinity College Dublin before coming to London. He was one of 11 children from a, quote, imprudent marriage and the first boy after five daughters. Hmm, five daughters. That sounds familiar. Tom was taking a holiday in Hampshire with his uncle at Ash Rectory, barely a mile from Steventon by a meadow path. In the oldest of Jane's surviving letters, dated January 9th, 1796, Jane writes to her sister Cassandra, who was staying with her future in-laws, the Fowles. Jane wished her sister a happy 23rd birthday, and for 23 more birthdays, immediately mentioning that Mr. Tom Lefroy's birthday was yesterday. She continues, You scold me so much in that nice long letter which I have this moment received from you that I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behave. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. I can expose myself, however, only once more, because he leaves the country soon after next Friday, on which day we are to have a dance at Ash after all. He is a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man, I assure you. But as to our having ever met, except at the last three balls, I cannot say much, for he is so excessively laughed at about me at Ash that he is ashamed of coming to Steventon, and ran away when we called on Mrs. Lefroy a few days ago. After I had written above, we had received a visit from Mr. Tom Lefroy and his cousin George. The latter is really well-behaved now, and as to the other, he has but one fault, which time will, I trust, entirely remove. It is that his morning coat is a great deal too light. He is a very great admirer of Tom Jones, and therefore wears the same colored clothes, I imagine, which he did when he was wounded. Tom Jones refers to the eponymous character in The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling, by English playwright and novelist Henry Fielding. Tom wears a white coat that shows off the blood from an injury he received while defending the honor of his beloved Sophia Western. 
In the next letter to Cassandra, dated January 16, 1796, Jane says, Our party to Ash tomorrow night will consist of Edward Cooper, James, for a ball is nothing without him, Bueller, who is now staying with us, and I. I look forward with great impatience to it, as I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend in the course of the evening. I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat. Later in the same letter, Jane writes, Friday. At length the day is come on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lefroy, and when you receive this it will be over. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. There is a report that Tom is going to be married to a Litchfield lass. Lucy Worsley says that Tom was sent away by his aunt in order to break off the growing romance between Tom and Jane. As the oldest son, he had too many brothers and sisters to worry about and couldn't afford to settle down at 21 years old and marry a penniless parson's daughter. Tom Lefroy lived to be 93 years old and he was later the Chief Justice of Ireland. Late in life, he was asked about Jane and said that he had loved her but it was a, quote, boyish love. I can't recommend Worsley's biography enough. It contains some amazing research and is written in such a funny, chatty, irony-laden tone that resembles Jane's own voice in some ways. I'll add a link to purchase it on the site. You can find this letter and many more in the Letters of Jane Austen on Project Gutenberg. I'll leave the link in the show notes. Last week, we read Chapter 1 of Sense and Sensibility, Austin's first published novel. Today, we'll read Chapter 2, and we'll meet the worst sister-in-law ever. To recap, in Chapter 1, we learned that old Mr. Dashwood, the family benefactor of the Dashwoods, had died, and that his heir, Mr. Henry Dashwood, also died, leaving his wife and three daughters relatively penniless and without a home of their own. Immediately after the funeral, Mrs. Dashwood's daughter-in-law moved into the home at Norland Park, displacing Mrs. Dashwood as the lady of the house. Mrs. John Dashwood now installed herself mistress of Norland, and her mother and sisters-in-law were degraded to the condition of visitors. As such, however, they were treated by her with quiet civility, and by her husband with as much kindness as he could feel towards anybody beyond himself, his wife, and their child. He really pressed them with some earnestness to consider Norland as their home, and as no plan appeared so eligible to Mrs. Dashwood as remaining there till she could accommodate herself with a home in the neighborhood, his invitation was accepted. Nothing could suit Mrs. Dashwood more than staying where she is. She's totally happy to be there for now, even if it means dealing with her daughter-in-law, Fanny. Now, we have to remember that Mrs. Dashwood is an emotional person. She has the sensibilities of the book's title. When she's happy, no temper could be more cheerful than hers. But when she's miserable, she's, quote, as far beyond consolation as in pleasure she was beyond alloy. Now, Fanny Dashwood, the daughter-in-law, has made herself at home and she's about to do something really underhanded. Remember that John Dashwood wanted to give his sisters 3,000 pounds. Mrs. John Dashwood did not at all approve of what her husband intended to do for his sisters. To take £3,000 from the fortunes of their dear little boy would be impoverishing him to the most dreadful degree. She begged him to think again on the subject. How could he answer to it himself to rob his child, and his only child too, 
of so large a sum. And what possible claim could the Miss Dashwoods, who were related to him only by half-blood, which she considered as no relationship at all, have on his generosity to so large an amount? It was very well known that no affection was ever supposed to exist between the children of any man by different marriages. And why was he to ruin himself and their poor little Harry by giving away all his money to his half-sisters? It was my father's last request to me, replied her husband, that I should assist his widow and daughters. He did not know what he was talking of, I dare say. Ten to one, but he was light-headed at the time. Had he been in his right senses, he could not have thought of such a thing as begging you to give away half your fortune from your own child. He did not stipulate any particular sum, my dear Fanny. He only requested me in general terms to assist them and make their situation more comfortable than it was in his power to do so. Perhaps it would have been as well if he had left it wholly to myself. He could hardly suppose I should neglect them. But as he required the promise... I could not do less than give it. At least I thought so at the time. The promise, therefore, was given and must be performed. Something must be done for them whenever they leave Norland and settle in a new home. So he did not stipulate for any particular sum. That is all Fanny needs to know. Now she's got him. Now she knows exactly what she needs to do. Well, then let something be done for them. But that something need not be 3,000 pounds. Consider, she added, that when the money is once parted, it can never return. Your sisters will marry, and it will be gone forever, if indeed it could ever be restored to our poor little boy. Why, to be sure, her, said her husband very gravely, that would make a great difference. The time may come when Harry will regret that so large a sum was parted with. If he should have a numerous family, for instance, it would be a very convenient addition." To be sure it would. Perhaps, then, it would be better for all parties if the sun were diminished one half. Five hundred pounds would be a prodigious increase to their fortunes. Now Fanny's got John to cut his support in half, but she's not even nearly done. Oh, beyond anything great, what brother on earth would do half so much for his sisters, even if really his sisters? And as it is, only half-blood, but you have such a generous spirit." And then she goes on to say, there would be no knowing what they may expect, said the lady, but we are not to think of their expectations. The question is what you can afford to do. Certainly, and I think I may afford to give them 500 pounds apiece, as it is, without any addition of mine, they will each have above 3,000 pounds on their mother's death, a very comfortable fortune for any young woman. To be sure it is, and indeed it strikes me that they can want no addition at all. They will have ten thousand pounds divided amongst them. If they marry, they will be sure of doing well, and if they do not, they may all live very comfortably together on the interest of ten thousand pounds. That is very true, and therefore I do not know whether, upon the whole, it would be more advisable to do something for their mother while she lives rather than for them. Something of the annuity kind, I mean. My sisters would feel the good effects of it as well as herself. A hundred a year would make them all perfectly comfortable. His wife hesitated a little. To be sure, it is better than parting with fifteen hundred pounds at once. But then if Mrs. Dashwood should live fifteen years, we shall be completely taken in. 
15 years, my dear Fanny, her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Now she hammers home the annoyance of having to pay an annuity, the trouble of having to pay it twice a year, and how it always comes due. And now she mentions her mother, how her mother is quite sick of having to pay an annuity to a retired servant. Fanny lays it on thick. She brings up gratitude and how he'll never be thanked for his generosity because his stepmother will expect it. I would not bind myself to allow them anything yearly. It may be very inconvenient some years to spare a hundred or even fifty pounds from our own expenses. Now she's got John's greedy, lazy nature piqued. She's talking about fifty pounds to a man who earns several thousand a year. But he is still, he's still trying to do the right thing. He still wants to give them something. I believe you are right, my love. It will be better that there should be no annuity in this case. Whatever I may give them occasionally will be of far greater assistance than a yearly allowance, because they would only enlarge their style of living if they felt sure of a larger income and would not be sixpence the richer at the end of the year. It would certainly be much the better way. A present of fifty pounds now and then will prevent their ever being distressed for money and will, I think, be amply discharging my promise to my father." To be sure it will, indeed, to say the truth, I am convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. The assistance he thought of, I dare say, was only such as might be reasonably expected of you, for instance, such as looking out for a comfortable small house for them, helping them to move their things, and sending them presents of fish and game and so forth whenever they are in season." Now Fanny smells blood in the water and she's going to finish him off by both offering the Dashwoods something small and describing how much they'll appreciate it. They'll be so well off. As long as they have no servants, don't go anywhere and don't do anything, they'll be so rich, they'll be much more able to give you something. I clearly understand it now. I will strictly fulfill my engagement by such acts of assistance and kindness to them as you have described. And then he says he could probably give the Dashwoods some furniture when they move out. But Fanny won't even give them that because she wants all the furniture in Norland. When your father and mother moved to Norland, though the furniture of Stanhill was sold, all the china, plate, and linen was saved and is now left to your mother. Her house will therefore be almost completely fitted up as soon as she takes it. But with no furniture, of course. So now John is totally into this, and he wants the china. <laughs> Fanny wraps it up with a dig at Henry Dashwood. Your father only thought of them. I must say this, that you owe no particular gratitude to him, nor attention to his wishes. For we very well know if he could, he would have left almost everything in the world to them. What a bitch. What a horrible, manipulative selfish, greedy, uncaring bitch. So we hate Fanny Dashwood already, two chapters into the book, and Austin has characterized someone in such a horrible way that we hate her within five pages. Wow. And her husband. We held out hope for him, despite being described in chapter one as cold-hearted and selfish. He wasn't as supposed to be as bad as his wife, but he's awful. He went from giving his sisters 3,000 pounds to taking their teacups. 
What's really interesting here is how Fanny manipulates John into these inactions. He was really set on giving them something to live on, but she methodically chipped away at every argument, played on his greedy and selfish nature, and worked him into these really negative feelings about his sisters and even his father. There are a lot of manipulative women in Austen's novels. Uh, you think about Lady Catherine de Burr comes to mind. Um, this type of character occurs so often that it becomes a trope. And Fanny isn't the only one of this character we'll see in Sense and Sensibility. So we'll definitely be talking about this type of woman again soon. But I briefly wanted to look at some of the criticism about this type of woman. First, we'll look at Mad Woman in the Attic by Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. This is a seminal work of feminist criticism. If you took any lit classes about female authors in college, you have probably at least heard of this book. This book is basically about how female authors in the 19th century were restricted to writing female characters who either embodied the angel because of their passivity or the monster because of their actions. So here we see Fanny Dashwood as a monster acting specifically to destroy a family out of her own selfish nature. Now, the following quote is actually about Mrs. Ferrers, Fanny's mother, but it perfectly describes Fanny. Quote, By tampering with the patriarchal lines of inheritance, Mrs. Ferris proves that the very forms valued by Eleanor are arbitrary. But even though Sense and Sensibility ends with the overt message that young women like Marianne and Eleanor must submit to the powerful conventions of society by finding a male protector, Mrs. Ferrers and her scheming protege Lucy Steele prove that women can themselves become agents of repression, manipulators of conventions, and survivors. But Lucy Steele isn't Mrs. Ferrers' only protege. Her daughter Fanny has manipulated the 18th and 19th century societal conventions that a brother would provide for his maiden sisters until they marry. Fanny has schemed to provide an additional £3,000 for her son, who does not need it, simply because she can. She represses the Dashwood ladies, forcing them to look elsewhere for help, forcing them to be independent at a time when women had limited ability to be independent, and she proves that all society norms are arbitrary and can be challenged and thwarted. In her book, Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf, and Worldly Realism, author Pam Morris talks about Fanny and John's obsession with wealth. She writes, John and Fanny Dashwood are exemplary in their obsessive and competitive acquisitiveness. While all their passions are invested in wealth getting, their sense of social extension into a shared world of fellow feeling is practically non-existent. The second chapter of the novel, in which John is only too ready to accept Fanny's arguments against keeping his promise to his father to provide for his stepsisters, offers a comic drama of the contraction of sympathies to exclude all but self. Fanny's language repeatedly foregrounds the possessive pronouns of the private individualist self as she contrasts the projective impoverishment of our poor little boy, John's own child, against the claims of Eleanor and Marianne who are his sisters only half-blood. 
Morris continues by discussing Fanny's indignation that her mother-in-law has been left all the china, plate, and linen of the former household, emphatically opposing our and own to theirs and them as discursive structures of competitive, acquisitive individualism. So Morris here is contrasting Fanny and John's individualistic motives and desire to be separate from the society of the Dashwood women to the Dashwoods need to be part of a family group that will support them because, in Fanny's mind, the Dashwood women represent a threat to her family's ability to earn and keep wealth. So Fanny manipulates John, but he's only too willing to follow her line of thought and maintain his family's position and wealth and avoid feeling guilty about leaving his sisters homeless and friendless and penniless. I would like to hear your thoughts on Fanny Dashwood and all the topics we discuss here on Ends and Sensibility. You can comment on our Facebook page or on Instagram or write a note to our email address, endsinsensibility at gmail.com. I'll read all of your notes and questions during the podcast and do my best to answer them. So besides having a horrible sister-in-law, a not very nice brother, and a father who was really not that good at planning and didn't have time to plan, the biggest problem that the Dashwood sisters face is money. When it comes down to it, they really haven't gotten much. Eleanor, Marianne, and Margaret will each receive 50 pounds a year from the interest on the thousand pounds they inherited their, from their father. In 2020 money, 50 pounds is about 3,500 pounds or $4,000. This isn't a lot of money now, and it really wasn't a lot in the 1790s when the novel is set, particularly when compared to women like Miss Gray, who we'll meet eventually, who inherits 50,000 pounds. Money was a big issue in the marriage market, and the money a woman could bring to the marriage was often the deciding factor. It was likely one reason Austen herself never married. And as we discussed earlier in the episode, Tom Lafroy was told to avoid Jane because she had no money. She wouldn't bring anything to a marriage with him. Money meant a good marriage and security for women, but not having it meant that women like the Dashwood women would have to marry someone with it. But because they have so little, their options are extremely limited. That means they have to rely on friends for social opportunities where they may meet eligible men, and they had to use common sense when they married. Most women couldn't afford to marry for love, which makes Austen's heroines exceptional in that all of them married for love, except for one. They need to marry for security in order to avoid the very worst, which would be working for their living as a governess. The Dashwood women have joined a very competitive marriage market in order to marry for their advantage. Of course, we'll discuss this problem again in future episodes and find out what Marianne and Eleanor think about marrying for wealth and security. Today we're going to try another new segment where I'll review Austin-related media, books from another point of view, parodies, movies, and TV shows, and other media and even criticism that we should read. I welcome your thoughts and ideas for things to read or watch. Now there are a ton of Austin-related parodies out there, but today I'm going to review Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. This novel, written by American author Ben H. Winters, and Jane Austen, was published in 2009. It's a mashup of Sense and Sensibility with 
obviously, sea monsters. You may have heard of the related Pride and Prejudice in Zombies, which was made into a movie. This was published the same year. This is a story of two or three families living in an England where the creatures of the ocean have turned against humans and begun attacking them. There is a distinct steampunk vibe to this book. There are a lot of steam-powered submarines, an underwater version of London called Submarine Station Beta, and lots of giant sea monsters making regular attacks on humans. I've got to say, this book is absurd and fun. Mr. Henry Dashwood dies on an expedition to find out why the sea creatures are attacking. Willoughby leaves Marianne while she's being attacked by a giant lobster. Marianne becomes ill with malaria instead of her sensibilities. And Barton Cottage is built on the back of Leviathan. It's really funny. The author does a good job merging Austin's original story with the camp and kitschy monster movies like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and with some of the early science fiction sensibilities of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I definitely recommend that you pick up Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters at your public library. I think that it is a really satisfying read. In our next episode, we'll meet the two characters representing Sense and Sensibility in the novel, and we'll also meet a man who I can only describe as a hobbit. Thank you for listening to the Ents and Sensibility podcast. This episode was written and produced by me, Casey Meserve. You can reach at me on Facebook at Ents and Sensibility, that's E-N-T-S and Sensibility, and on Instagram. You can also write the show at EntsAndSensibility at gmail.com. You can also leave a review on the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening. Check out our website, EntsAndSensibility.com, for episode notes, a list of books mentioned on the podcast, and more. Thank you, and I hope you'll visit again soon.